Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the fact that we have the privilege of worshiping you now in the preaching, hearing, and application of your word. Father, may our thoughts of you um, be um, raised and heightened as we hear, uh, Lord, this message this morning and what you would have for us. I pray that you would help us to respond to it in obedience, out of love and gratitude for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the title of this morning's message is Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. A very light theme, right? We've titled this year, as you know, the Year of Evangelism. And uh, we've uh, kick-started this Year of Evangelism where we really want to foster and promote a greater culture of evangelism in our church and of outreach, of sharing our faith. And we've kicked it off with a five-part um, sermon series titled God's Good News. Um, good news, obviously, is pointing to the gospel, the good news. Gospel means good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we started with two messages, if you remember, focused on the heart of evangelism, the heart of evangelism, why we should evangelize. What is our motivation to share Christ with other people? Pastor Tim, a couple of Sundays ago, talked to us about God's heart for the lost, that we ought to imitate the compassion of God for the lost, that he wants to see people come to know him. And so we should be people as Christians who follow his example and we are compassionate. We should have a heart for the lost as well. That should motivate us to share Christ. Secondly, and most importantly, I think, um, we should um, remember that God has a heart for his son. That God the Father desires that Christ, his son, would be exalted. That he would be made much of on this earth. So that should be our desire as Christians, that as, as we treasure and value Christ in our hearts, that, and as we remember that God has a heart for His Son to be exalted in the lives of people, we should want to see Christ be exalted in people here in the world. And our hope and prayer as your leaders is that you've reflected and examined your heart um, in the light of those two messages. And maybe ask yourself, do you have a heart for the lost? Do you have a heart for the lost? Are you, or are you so preoccupied with the stuff of life, with so much going on in your life, you're so busy, you're so distracted with so many things that you've forgotten about your core mission, that you are here to share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus Christ? Do you have a heart for the lost? And more importantly, do you love Christ so much that you want others to come to treasure and cherish and exalt Christ themselves? Do you love Christ so that you're driven and motivated to want to share Jesus with other people? Now today and next week, um, we want to deal with some practical issues now related to evangelism. We move from the, from the heart, our motivation for sharing our faith, to now the hands, the action of evangelism. And we want to consider together some truths that have a direct bearing on our call to share Jesus Christ. And this morning, we want to consider evangelism and the sovereignty of God. Boy, that's an important issue, isn't it? That's an important issue. Because God's sovereignty can either be a huge incentive for some people to share their faith, or an understanding of the sovereignty of God, when wrongly understood, can be a huge deterrent from us sharing our faith. In other words, the more that we understand the sovereignty of God, and if we don't respond and affirm to what Scripture has to say about the sovereignty of God um, in a positive way, we are going to be actually, we're going to shy away from sharing our faith with other people. 
But a healthy understanding of the sovereignty of God that is biblical and that, is, and that responds with a heart of obedience to the sovereignty of God as seen in Scripture will be a huge force, driver towards us sharing about Jesus Christ. And that's really the main idea that I want to get across to you this morning, brethren. I want to remind us this morning that a healthy and accurate understanding of God's sovereignty as it relates to salvation, rather than deterring us from sharing Christ, is the greatest incentive to share Christ with other people, without bias and without prejudice. If you rightly and in a healthy way understand the sovereignty of God, you will not neglect to share your faith but you're actually going to be about fulfilling the Great Commission all the more because of the fact that you know that God is sovereign. And if you're taking notes, I want to develop this in three statements that you and I must affirm and submit to if we are going to understand the sovereignty of God rightly. First of all, God is absolutely sovereign. Statement number one. God is absolutely sovereign. Second, humans are fully responsible creatures. Humans are fully responsible creatures. And thirdly, let's see if we get to this this morning. Thirdly, the mission of the church is to reach the lost. The mission of the church is to reach the lost. If you and I are going to be faithful to our call to be about the Great Commission and share our faith with other people so that they would come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, we must affirm all three of those statements if we're going to be faithful to sharing Jesus. God is absolutely sovereign. Humans are fully responsible for their choices. And thirdly, the mission of the church is to reach the lost. First of all, first statement that we must affirm and submit to from the heart is this. God is absolutely sovereign. God is absolutely and supremely sovereign. This is so important for us to remember as we walk in our pilgrimage here on this earth and be about mission. Because it's so easy for some people to resort to manipulation tactics when they share about Jesus Christ. In an effort to want to see people make decisions for Jesus. Or when we don't understand and affirm the sovereignty of God correctly, we are driven as people, as Christians, to to water down the gospel so that it's palatable for people, so that they embrace Jesus. And so we might present to people a diminished version of the Christ of Scripture. We must not water down the gospel. We must remember that God is sovereign over salvation ultimately. Other people live guilt-ridden. Maybe they've been faithful to sharing Christ with family members and extended family members. Maybe they've been faithful, you have, to sharing Christ with neighbors and co-workers and so forth. But you live guilt-ridden because you wonder if there's some deficiency in you, something that you didn't say, some argument that you didn't present to them, that that's the reason why they are not saved. The sovereignty of God reminds us that that is not the case in an ultimate sense. We've got to remember that Jesus, that God is Sovereign. Now, what do we mean when we say that God is sovereign? Good question, isn't it? What do we mean? Well, the sovereignty of God refers to God's supreme rule and authority over the entire universe. It refers to God's supreme rule and authority over the entire universe. Listen to what Arthur Pink comments. What do we mean by the expression, the sovereignty of God? We mean the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the Godhood of God. Simply stated, to say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. 
I like that. God's sovereignty includes the fact that God has all authority, all power, and all wisdom to do whatever He pleases in His creation. The belief in the sovereignty of God is not any person's creation. Not mine, not nor anyone who's ever lived and written about the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is supported all over Scripture. And I just want to give you a sampling of verses, and we're going to go pretty fast through these, okay? So feel free to, to turn to these passages. That's fine if you're, um, you're able to do that, or just write them down, okay, and meditate on these. Here's a, just a sampling of what the Bible says about the absolute sovereignty of God. Ready? Psalm 103 and verse 19 says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. That reference there to God's throne points to to God's position as king, as a monarch who rules over everything. That as king, God exercises His rule and authority over everything, big and small in His universe. Psalm 115 and verse 3 says this, But our God is in the heavens, and He does whatever He pleases. I love that. This is a statement that only God can make. Only God can do whatever He pleases. We might set ourselves out to have goals and purposes in life, but you know that for one reason or another, things don't always happen as we intend it to happen, right? Right? Because we are human beings. We're finite beings. We are fallible creatures. But God does as He pleases. And if He says He's going to do something, He will make it happen. Amen? There's nothing that doesn't happen that God has not decreed, pre-planned to take place in His universe. Only one who has, who has all authority and power and wisdom can do anything that He pleases. Listen to Psalm 135, verses 5 and 6. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and in earth, in the seas, and in all deeps. That pretty much covers everything, right? Everywhere. God is sovereign over all realms of the universe. He's sovereign from the tiniest molecule to the biggest heavenly entities that we're aware of as creatures. Sovereign over everything. See, I think we forget who's in charge oftentimes. But over and over again, these verses and many others emphasize what we call the creator-creature distinction that we should, those lenses that we should put on when we read our Bible should be the creator-creature distinction lenses. That there is one who is God and we are all subject to this God. We are the creatures. He is the creator who is completely sovereign. Isaiah 49 verse or 45 and verse 9 emphasizes this. Listen. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. In other words, we are vessels. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands. That's the creator creature distinction there. We are creatures, we are made For God's glory and for His purposes, He rules over us. None of us have a right to point our finger back at God and say, Why, God? Why do you do that? We might in our honest moments when we are hurting, and we should cry out that way, Lord, why? We see that in the Psalms, don't we? 
And our Heavenly Father wants us to come to Him with questions like that. But this is talking about in a rebellious, a mutinous kind of way, coming and questioning God as if we know better than God does. And we don't. He's the Creator. We are the creatures. Listen to Isaiah 45 and verse 23. I have sworn by myself. This is God speaking. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. In other words, if I say something, says God, that something's going to happen, it will happen. My word will come to pass. Isaiah 46 and verse 9. Remember the former things long past. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Pretty definitive, isn't it? Pretty definitive. That if God decrees purposes that something will happen from before the foundation of the world, it will happen. It will happen. Job 42 and verse 2 is especially telling. Job comes to the point where he says, I know that you, God, can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job, you know his situation. He was a man who suffered greatly. He could have come to the point where he could have tried to acquit God of any responsibility for his suffering or maybe blame God for not taking the suffering away. But instead, Job comes to acknowledge that ultimately God is sovereign and in control over all of his circumstances. And if he was allowing them, he had a greater purpose for his suffering. And at the end of the book of Job, he comes to realize that God's purpose was that that Job would come to know God more intimately. I have heard of you with the ear, he says at the end of the book. But now my eyes see you and I repent in dust and ashes. Remember that? Boy, through these circumstances, God, you've opened my eyes in a new way to who you are. And you've drawn me closer to yourself. I repent if I ever questioned you. Wow. It's so important for us, brethren. That even if we don't fully grasp the sovereignty of God, that we would affirm these texts and an array of others that point to the fact that God is absolutely sovereign. And you know why I say that? Because there are people today who, in the name of wanting to acquit God of, of any responsibility, create a different God, an idol, not the God of Scripture. They might say that God created everything, but then left the universe to itself to kind of sort of rule itself and manage itself. They might say that and create a God that they say doesn't know everything in the future. So just like you and I, just regular humans, just like you and I, he's surprised when bad things happen. He's taken off guard. That he's not all powerful. So that he's helpless when bad things happen. He doesn't have the power to stop things. He wishes he he could like us, but he just doesn't have the power or the ability to do so. Can I remind us that that's not the God of the Bible? That's not the God of Scripture. That's a God who ultimately is no different than us. A God who is subject to chance. And can I remind us, there is no such thing as chance in the Word of God. 
No such thing as chance. No such thing as coincidence. We might sometimes in the spur of the moment and just to communicate in English word in the, in, uh, naturally with somebody else, use words like coincidence. But ultimately, we need to remember that there is no such thing as coincidence or chance when it comes to God. He's absolutely sovereign over big things and small things. See, Christians who read their Bibles don't believe in such things. Christians who read and understand their Bibles reject such a God with a little g, who is not the God of the Bible. Scripture is abundantly clear that the one true God is sovereign, absolutely sovereign, supremely rules with absolute authority over his universe, even if we can't fully understand all, uh, how that works. That's what Scripture says. Now, some people may not have an issue with God's sovereignty generically that way over all of the universe and all of creation. But what becomes a bit more challenging for most people is when the Bible also says that God is not only sovereign over creation, but that He's sovereign over salvation. That He's sovereign over who will be saved. And yet there is overwhelming support for God's sovereignty over who will be saved as well in God's Word. And I want to read some text to you as well that point to this. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Peter writing to Christians, and keep that in mind when I make a point in a few minutes. He's writing to Christians here in all of these texts. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, and here it is, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, he says. Peter is writing to Christians whom he refers to as those who are chosen. Oftentimes believers, Christians are referred to as the chosen ones, the elect ones. That's not any man's creation. That's Holy Scripture that says that. So we have to make sense of what that means. What does it mean to be chosen and elect? But he uses that word also, foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. That's a word from, um, uh, it's related to a word, prognosco. Prognosco, which literally means to know something beforehand. To know beforehand. And foreknowledge in, in that passage and in others doesn't refer to um, the fact that God looked down the corridors of time to the future so that he knew beforehand who would choose him so that then he chose that particular person that responded to his call of salvation. That's not what foreknowledge means. That he foreknew means that he pre-planned salvation in the life of someone and in the lives of these believers. Ephesians 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us, Christians, in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy, that is set apart for His purposes, and blameless before Him. It says, God chose you before the foundation of the world before anything. He created anything in the universe. He chose you, believers, Christians. Heavy-duty stuff, isn't it? But it's true. That's what God's Word says. And whether we fully understand it or not, we must affirm that truth. 
Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. Writing to believers again. All of these letters are to Christians, local churches. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Titus 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth. Why do people have faith in Jesus? God chose them from a divine standpoint. Now, all of Scripture is equally authoritative, but I want you to listen to some of Jesus' statements. All Scripture is equally authoritative. Okay, There are some Bibles that have Jesus' words in red letters as if they are any more important than the rest of Scripture, right? All of the Bible is God's Word. But listen to Jesus' words in John chapter 15, verse 16. Jesus said, You... Followers, did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear much fruit. The disciples didn't choose Jesus. Jesus chose them. They had been given to him by his father, and he lost none of them. He called them. They followed him. John chapter 6 and verse 44. The words of Jesus again. No one can come to me unless the Father, meaning God the Father, who sent me, draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. To draw there literally means to to drag away in the sense that when God calls us to himself, we are irresistibly drawn to him. Those whom God has called, he will save. Amen? He's sovereign over salvation. John chapter 6. And verse 65, and he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me, says Jesus, unless it has been granted him from the Father. Jesus says, unless my Father draws you, calls you, grants you life, you won't choose me. You won't choose me. Now why is this? Why is it that it must be God who initiates salvation in the life of someone Why must he intervene? And the Bible tells us it's because of the condition of every human being that comes into this world. And the Bible puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. And you, writing to believers, but prior to coming to know Christ, and you were, past tense, dead in your trespasses and sins. You want to know what you were, what characterized you before Jesus? You were spiritually dead dead now let me ask you i have had people loved ones and friends and sheep in the church that have passed away what do those beloved people do when you cry for them and you try to shake them and you try to do that what do they do what does a dead person do nothing they're unresponsive right they're unresponsive that's part of the grief they're not going to be with us anymore I mean, the metaphor is pretty clear, isn't it? This is who you, you were spiritually dead prior to Christ coming to your, into your heart and giving you life by His Spirit. You were spiritually dead. Dead people spiritually don't respond to the stimuli of truth unless the Spirit of God awakens them to spiritual life. So then it says in Ephesians 2.4, In light of this, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but... 
Ephesians 2.4, God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, in case you didn't get the point, verse 1, here it is, even when you were dead, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. You see, God is the actor, the energizer, who through his spirit awakens and gives spiritual life. This is why God is sovereign over salvation, beloved, and why we must trust him when we share Christ. And in prayer, asking him to awaken somebody from spiritual death. Now hear me. As we consider God's sovereignty, and in particular even the issues of election and God's choosing, I want to remind us of two things that are very important for us as we understand God's sovereignty and election and God's choosing. First, the doctrine of election of God's choosing is a doctrine for the believer. For the Christian's comfort. All of those texts, I told you to keep in mind that those texts were were written to what kinds of people? Christians. They weren't written to unbelievers in a direct sense. They were written to Christians. And when the biblical authors, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, start, to, start talking about God's sovereignty and election and choosing and those things, they are seeking to comfort the brethren. What do, why, why do I bring that up? Because I've heard Christians who wave around at non-Christians the doctrines of sovereignty and election and choosing, and they say things like this, you know what, ultimately, if God has chosen you, then you will respond. If God has elected you, then you will respond. I don't see any support for that kind of preaching in the Bible. And I would love for you to come up to me after and show me where it says that, that you wave around the doctrine of sovereignty and election and choosing when you share the gospel with somebody in a genuine, honest way. I don't find that consistent in Scripture, neither in the history of the church, the great preachers of old. It's always an open call to repent and believe in Jesus Christ and then leave the results to the Lord. Amen? We share with all God who knows who He has elected and chosen will will bear the results in their lives. Right? The doctrine of election is a Comfort doctrine for the Christian. That's why in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we love that verse. Romans 8, 28, when Paul says to believers, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. He's writing that to believers to comfort them amidst their sufferings and trials and all of that in chapter 8 in the context. In light of everything we go through in life, just know, Christians, that everything will work together for good to you who love God, who are called according to His purpose. And then down the line in verse 29, he says this, For those whom He foreknew, Christians, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And hear this, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. It's like an indestructible chain of these links of God's hand. That if God has foreknown you and chosen you, no matter what happens in your life, no matter what happens in our world, no matter what happens as far as your struggle with sin, if you belong to Him, take comfort, Christian. God will preserve your salvation from beginning to end. Election, chosen, those beautiful realities that God is sovereign should comfort the believer. 
They're not to be waved at the non-believer and say, well, if you're chosen, ultimately, you will come. If you're elect, ultimately, this, this will happen. No. We need to t- keep that in mind. Paul is not after a defense of the doctrine of God's sovereignty or of election. We use those texts that speak of those things, oftentimes to pick a fight with other people and all of that and debate this and debate that. He highlights God's sovereign work of salvation from beginning to end as a way to bring hope and comfort to Christians. I think that is so helpful for us as we have the confidence to evangelize, isn't it? Spurgeon put it some, some, um, some way like this. People don't walk around with an E for elect on their back, right? We just share the gospel with everyone and leave the results to the Lord. Secondly, as we think about God's sovereignty and election and God's choosing and these things, we must remember this, that God is sovereign over creation and over salvation, and yet nowhere in Scripture is God the direct agent or author of evil. He is sovereign over evil. He uses evil, may choose, and he has chosen to use evil to accomplish his purposes. But nowhere in the Bible is God the direct author or agent of evil. We have texts like these, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5. God is light. And light there is a metaphor for the holiness of God. The fact that God is set apart. He is holy like no other. God is light, and in Him, in God, there is no darkness at all. You want to know what the Greek word there for no means? No darkness at all. None. No darkness at all. Psalm Psalm 5, verse 4. No evil dwells with you. No evil dwells with God. Psalm 18, and verse 30. As for God, he says, his way is blameless. The ESV puts it this way. His way is perfect. That's speaking about moral character, perfection as far as moral character and his judgments being blameless and morally perfect. And James 1.13 is especially instructive for us. James says to his brethren who are scattered all over the place, let no one say, brethren, Christians, when he is being tempted... I am being tempted by God. And temptation there is the the inward solicitation to evil. When we're moved to want to do evil. He says, don't blame God. Let no one say when he's being tempted by God, I'm being tempted by God. Don't blame God. Why? For God cannot be tempted by evil. That is, he's not subject to evil. It's against his nature to be tempted to do evil. He's holy and righteous and just. He always does. He only gives good and perfect gifts. James goes on to say in that text, God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself, emphatically, whenever you see that, he himself, it's emphatic. He himself does not tempt anyone. Do your research, James says. Do your research, and no matter how much you search for God in evil, you will never find him as the direct agent of evil. And he goes on to say, but each one, each person, is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And the emphasis now is on personal responsibility in that text. Don't blame God. Look at your heart. Lust there is evil desire. It's your evil desire that ultimately leads to sin in your life, which ultimately leads to death 
if you don't repent of it, eternally speaking. There's so much more that could be said about this. Probably should be said in future messages, okay? But I was given this topic, okay? So there you go. God is absolutely sovereign, number one. But number two, this in no way negates our second point and statement that we must affirm and submit to. Humans are fully responsible for their choices. Humans are fully responsible for their choices. Just as much as it's true that God is sovereign, so it's equally true that humans are responsible for their sinful choices. And again, I want to remind you, this is not the the invention of any person or based upon some system. The Bible, which is God's word, abundantly makes it clear that people on the last day will not perish on the last day and be judged because they weren't chosen, but because they rejected God's gift of salvation offered freely through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. No sin can keep you out of heaven. No sin can keep you from being reconciled to your maker. But the sin of rejecting God's provision, God's free gift of salvation, found through the person and the work of Christ. That is the unpardonable sin. Rejecting Christ as Lord and Savior. Matthew 23 and verse 37. So key here. The Lord Jesus Christ is lamenting um, the Israelites, the rejection of Um, one prophet after another over the history of Israel, including now uh, their rejection of him. And listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37. He mourns, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. He's mourning over Jerusalem and the people who have rejected him. He says, there have been many who have come before, prophet after prophet, and many who have been sent by God to preach the good news to these people of the coming of the Messiah. He says, and now 3.5 years, the ultimate missionary preacher evangelist, Jesus preaches the good news, and he says, you were unwilling. He places the responsibility on these people who have had countless witnesses from God and they've rejected them and rejected the ultimate preacher evangelist who is Jesus. He holds them responsible for their rejection. And those sent. In John chapter 5 and verse 39, this is our Lord talking again. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these, the scriptures, that testify about me. And here it is. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. The testimony is abundance, says our Lord. Your problem is not that you need more proof. You need more scripture, more revelation from God. Your problem is that you are unwilling. You do not want to believe. Who does he place the responsibility on? The rejectors, those who have rejected him. See, the call of the gospel is to all, but the problem is our unbelief. This is seen also in John 3, a familiar passage for all of us that has John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes 
shall not perish but have everlasting life. See, the call of the gospel is to everyone, to whosoever believes. When we preach the gospel, when we share Christ with people, you share the gospel with everyone. But notice what he says in John 3.18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. You want to know what the problem is with your non-believing family members and neighbors and people that you've shared Christ with that reject Jesus? The problem is not that you haven't given them enough proof, though if they ask for it in a genuine way, you should give it to them, because our faith is reasonable from Scripture, isn't it? But the problem ultimately is the fact that they don't want to receive the words of God. They love darkness rather than the light. That's what Jesus says. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested or shown as having been wrought in God. See, people don't come to Christ because they love their sin. That's the reality. God places a verdict on people to repent and believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. And people reject God's wonderful provision of salvation in Jesus Christ because they want to hold on to their sin and to their rebellious ways. And they don't want to turn to Christ. They want to be lords with a little L over their lives. They don't want to submit to the Lord with a capital L of the universe, Jesus Christ. That's the problem. The call of the gospel is a universal call for all, and it's also clear that God doesn't turn back any person who is genuinely broken over their sin. Again, John 3.16, Whosoever believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 3.13 says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And I say to that to all of you this morning who don't know Jesus, Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're genuinely broken over your sin, you genuinely recognize that you've offended your holy and righteous creator. Listen to me. Call upon the name of the Lord. Come to Jesus. Turn from your sins. Put your trust in Jesus. God will never turn back a broken sinner over their sin. He will never turn somebody like that back. Psalm 51, verse 17. The broken and contrite of heart. Broken over what and contrite over what? Contrite over their sin. The broken and contrite of heart, God will not despise. Psalm 34, verse 18, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Crushed over what? Over your sin. So that you seek Him. So that you confess your sin. And that you trust in Jesus Christ that God may save you. That He might reconcile you to Himself. So listen. Yes, God is sovereign over everything, including salvation. But equally, yes, humans are responsible for their choices and for their sins. Both of these are twin pillars. Siamese twins, if you will, that we must hold tightly close together if we're going to be faithful to what the Word of God says. J.I. Packer writes that these are what we call an antinomy. An antinomy, two truths or principles that seem or appear to contradict one another, but ultimately they do not in the mind of God. 
You see, the tension of harmonizing the sovereignty of God with human responsibility exists in our minds, not in the mind of God. The key is that from our limited, finite human perspective, they appear contradictory, but not from God's infinite and eternal perspective. J.I. Packer writes this, quote, That wondrous truth of man's responsibility is a balance to the great emphasis of God's sovereignty. Although the two truths seem mutually exclusive to our finite minds as humans, God's sovereign choice of every person who is saved is, in his infinite mind, perfectly consistent with his promise that whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. End quote. Tough stuff, huh? But Isaiah 58 verses 8 and 9 says, has God saying, My ways are not are higher than your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. They are higher thoughts than yours. If we could understand everything about everything, beloved, then that would make us who? God. And that's exactly the core of human problem, isn't it? We, are, we want to glorify self. We want to exalt self. We don't want to submit to a creator. We don't want to accept the creator-creature distinction. Anything that we can't understand, we reject because we don't fully understand it. But the tension exists in our finite minds, not in his mind. And just because we don't fully understand something or because something is a mystery in Scripture doesn't mean that it's not true. Take, for example, the nature of God as revealed in the Bible. That the Christian God, the one true God, is a triune God. One God eternally existing as three persons. Not three gods. One God eternally existing as three persons whom the Scripture reveals as Father, Son, and Spirit. Easy to understand that truth? No way, man. In volume after volume after volume in church history that has been written trying to understand and trying to get people to wrap their minds around that truth. But just because we don't understand all the nuts and bolts and intricacies of that doesn't make the nature of God as revealed in Scripture wrong or that it's not true. God is sovereign but not in a way that we are puppets who are forced or coerced. Each of us is fully responsible for our choices. In case you want a couple of examples of this, in Luke chapter 22, if you remember during the the Lord's Supper, at one point Jesus hands the morsel to Judas Iscariot, basically pinpointing him as the betrayer. And then Jesus says, it says this in Luke chapter 22 and verse 20. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one, i.e. Judas Iscariot, betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going, that is to the cross, as it has been determined, he says. The Son of Man is going to the cross as it has been determined. There's the sovereignty of God. But then he says, But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Who is that? Judas Iscariot. He holds Judas responsible for the betrayal of the Lord. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching to the multitudes about the death of Christ. And he says this in Acts chapter 22 and verse 22. This man, namely Christ... Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, what happened to Jesus is ultimately a part of God's sovereignty, God's sovereign will. But then he says, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. Twin pillars. God is 
sovereign, but that doesn't acquit man of his responsibility. Amen? So the sovereignty of God and human responsibility are things that we must hold tightly to because Scripture affirms them. Spurgeon called them friends. He says, I never try to reconcile friends. I never try to reconcile friends. That is friends in Scripture. These kinds of these beautiful realities that seem to us as humans contradictory, but they're not in the mind of God. He says, they are like our, our two eyes. Without one eye, your vision is imp- impacted or impaired. End quote. This leads to our third statement that must be affirmed. God is sovereign, absolutely sovereign. Humans are fully responsible for their choices. But third, the mission of the church is to reach the lost. And for that, you're going to have to wait until next week. But suffice it to say, Our mission is to share the gospel in dependence on the Holy Spirit and leave the results to a sovereign God who, listen to me, delights in saving sinners. He finds joy and delight in saving sinners. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. And hear the heart of God for all people. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's the heart of God right there. That's the heart of God. That should be our heart, beloved. Amen? The great pastor, preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, who absolutely believed in the sovereignty of God, also said the following. Listen to what he says. Not one of us are exempted from the work of spreading the gospel because we are engaged in some other work. Good as it is, that is whatever you're pursuing, good as it is, though it may be very intimately connected to the kingdom of Christ, yet it does not exonerate us from the work of endeavoring to bring sinners to Christ. There is nothing whatsoever in the whole world to excuse any mouth from speaking for Jesus from the heart if he's really acquainted with his salvation. That is, if we're saved... We're going to want to share about Christ. And then he adds, we are called to make Jesus known if we know him ourselves. Let us trust in the divine energy of the Holy Spirit and speak the truth in relying upon his might. End quote. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, thank you for the beautiful theological twin pillars that you are sovereign, absolutely sovereign, and we are fully responsible Humans are for our choices, for our sin. We can trust those truths because they are your word. Father, help us where we are weak and we are unbelieving with regards to these truths. Help us to embrace them and submit to them so that we are driven to be on mission and share Christ with everyone that you bring to our path. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.